The borderland of the brain, where all the monsters are made, moved horribly in the Gaelic O'Brien. He felt the chaotic presence of all the horsemen and fish women that man's unnatural fancy had begotten. A voice older than his first father's seemed saying in his ear, Keep out of the monstrous garden where grows the tree with double fruit. Avoid the evil garden where died the man with two heads. Yet, while these shameful symbolic shapes passed across the ancient mirror of his Irish soul, his Frenchified intellect was quite alert and was watching the odd priest as closely and incredulously as all the rest. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. Join us each week as we endeavor to take in the wisdom and wit of this larger-than-life journalist, fiction writer, poet, and illustrator. On today's episode, we are discussing the second of G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown mysteries, The Secret Garden, which is part of the collection The Innocence of Father Brown. Hello, Grace. Hello. <laughs> Grace, what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking a Guinness, which is par for the course. I just love Guinness so much. I do too, and I am actually also holding a Guinness in my hand. I made I learned from my mistake a couple episodes back when I wasn't prepared and I only had tea in my house. So <laughs> what have you been up to this week? Oh, so many things. This week has been full of work. Um, lots of things going on at school nearing the end of the quarter. So just a bunch of extra after school things, which had not left a lot of time for me to be reading a lot of Chesterton, but I did read our story. And so I'm excited to talk about it. What have you been up to? I have also had, um, quite a busy week. Um, we have started seeing a few more friends lately for dinners and, We've celebrated a few fun things, birthdays and babies, et cetera. And so it's been a good week and a busy week. That's great. It's finally cold here in Louisiana. <laughs> Normally it's hot and annoying and it's winter and you're just like, where's the snow and the Christmas lights and everything? You guys get snow in sweating. Louisiana? No. <laughs> oh, okay. At least not where I, I am. I didn't think so. Okay. Although, although two years ago we did have a snow and it was like snow, snow. It stuck for a few hours. So <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. But um but yeah, it's finally cold and it feels like winter and it's all crisp and cool and we can wear sweaters and we had Thanksgiving off um which is great to have that week off, but then when we come back, my school decided that it was sweatpants week for everyone, which is just glorious when you're coming off of a break back to work. So for us we wear jeans, but it's nice to just be able to wear jeans and sweaters and feel comfy. So Yeah, so cozy. We've been reading Father Brown, obviously, but I've also been reading a few other things. And most recently, I've been working through uh, Walker Percy's Ooh. Love in the Ruins. Oh, wow. And I can't tell you how I feel about it yet because I feel conflicted so far. I can imagine. I have not read that yet. It's been on my list. I was warned about it 
by a good friend of mine who's read it. Walker Percy is big around here because he was from Louisiana, I believe, or from Mississippi maybe, but he ended up in Louisiana. But he's buried at um, St. Joseph Abbey, which is the Benedictine monastery just about an hour down the road from me. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, so he's kind of big in this area and I've been wanting to read some of him, but haven't yeah. ventured. One yeah. of my, one of my coworkers is a huge fan of his and has read, I think, lots of his books and he recommended this book. For those of you who don't know, it's a apocalyptic feeling text. Dystopian kind of. Yeah. And I'm, I'm only a couple chapters into it, but so far I don't like it, but that doesn't mean that I won't um, eventually. And I, I know that sometimes sticking with a book will get you to a place where you do understand it and you do enjoy it. Um, and not every book is meant to be like a beach read. Sometimes <laughs> books are difficult and bring up uh, difficult emotions and that's okay. That's very true. I think that there's been several books in my life where, yeah, when people are like, oh, did you like that book? I'm like, yeah. Define <laughs> crying I, under my blanket yeah. at 12 at night. Um, <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I think that something can be, uh, you can appreciate something without enjoying it, if that makes right, sense. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are a few books that um, are considered classics that I've read that I completely disagree with. Mm -hmm. I'll never read them again, but mm -hmm. we won't get into that now. Have you right. been reading anything um, interesting lately? So like I said, this week was very busy, but I have been trying <laughs> to be better about um, spending some time in prayer um, every day. And so I've been reading by myself, but also with my classes, various passages of Isaiah since it's Advent um, as we're recording this. And so just trying to get into to scripture and reflect on this season of waiting and hopeful anticipation of joy that's to come. And so yeah. Isaiah is just beautiful. I, I kind of forgotten like how lovely some of the passages are, these prophecies of the coming of Christ and just like the imagery, there's so much good imagery and it's, mm -hmm. it's like reading poetry, you know, and I really enjoy poetry. So I've been really enjoying reading that with my classes. I'm typically reading through gospels with my classes. And so it's very clear prose and, you know, yeah. Jesus directly the story of his life and all of this. And so Isaiah is a nice break from the prose and kind yeah. of getting into the verse a little bit. Yeah, I know. I find Isaiah to actually be one of the most beautiful books in the Bible. And I, it gives me chills to read the prophecies and then amazing to reflect how on Christ's are. life. Yeah, I'm actually doing something similar. Um, I a friend just gifted me the Maranatha um, Advent Journal that um, Blessed Is She put out this year. Oh, nice. and I don't have a whole lot of Blessed Is She's materials, um, so I'm not an expert on what else they they have created. But this Advent Journal. Is has been a really nice way to reflect and has been drawing on passages from Isaiah and then also on, obviously, passages from the New Testament. I admit that I <laughs> cried the other day because I realized that God became a little baby and mm. was born in a cave on this earth. And it's just such a vulnerable, overwhelming truth about our faith. I, I just imagine 
like being a woman, imagining meeting my own children someday, Mary meeting her son. And not only is he probably the most adorable baby, but he's also divine and um, fully human, fully divine. So I think this month is one of my favorite months of the year. I really mm. like the quiet anticipation that it offers. It's true. I really love Advent because of just the theme of waiting uh, seems to be really prominent in my life. <laughs> it's just I feel like there's always something to be waiting for and it's hard for me because I'm an impatient person <laughs> to wait. Uh, but it's so good and it's so fruitful if I can allow myself to lean into that. Yeah. So I, I haven't done the Blessed Is She journal. I've done one called Take Up and Read before. I don't know if you're familiar oh, yeah. with those. Is that our Sunday visitor? I think so. Um, okay. okay. But I really, I really enjoy theirs. I've done th theirs in the past for Lent and for some other seasons as well. But this year, my mom uh, gifted me Bishop Barron's Gospel Reflections, and they're very short and very simple. But that's another thing I've been trying to do each day. So that's been helping me kind of get into the Gospels personally, uh, not just with my classes. That's always kind of a struggle. Of yeah. it's probably a struggle, I think, for for priests or for preachers as well. Like that, you're yeah. you're constantly teaching the scripture, but it's hard to make sure that you yourself are praying with it uh, yeah. first, and not just thinking like, "Oh, how can I teach other people about this?" You know? Yeah. Should we dive into the summary for the Secret Garden? Sure. Okay. Great. Aristide Valentine, head of the Paris police, has invited several colorful characters, including Father Brown, to dinner in his home. Later in the evening, after several guests have passed through Valentine's garden, one of them discovers a body there, a mystery man who has been brutally beheaded. Valentine's unusually secure and guarded house provides a puzzling backdrop for the shocking crime, but Valentine is determined to prove the innocence of all his guests without involving the police. Soon the murder weapon, a stolen French cavalry sword, is discovered, and a distinguished American guest, Julius K. Brain, is nowhere to be found. The whole party assumes Brain's guilt, and Valentine sends for some policemen to hunt him down. In the process, a mysterious second head is found in the river near Valentine's house, and a search for the body belonging to it is attempted unsuccessfully. Despite the party's conviction that the American is the murderer, five important questions remain unanswered. Number one, why did Brain use a sword to kill his victim when a sharp knife would have done the trick and more easily? Number two, why was there no scream or outcry when the victim saw Brain waving a sword over him? Number three, how did a victim that no one recognizes get into the garden to meet Brain? Number four, how did Brain get out of the garden? And number five, why were there slash marks on the victim's torso when his head had clearly already been cut off? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I hope you all have read it. And so that's not a dun, dun, dun moment. Yeah, please read it. Please <laughs> read it because I just, these stories are so well crafted that I don't want to spoil it for anyone because you can't get it back. So if you if you haven't read it, stop right now, turn the podcast off, go read it and then come back and listen. That is your warning. And now we jump into it. From the start, we are experiencing Valentine's home, which is this sort of gloomy house. And it's 
perfectly established for an inspector who has lots of people out there who want to kill him um, because he has arrested them. And I think this is probably the case with like policemen and things like that today who have arrested people. They keep their their homes sort of secret and safe. But um, we come into his home. Valentine is not yet there, uh, but we learn that he has an inescapable garden that has a smooth, tall wall surrounding the entire thing. The only exits and entrances to the garden come from the inside of the house. The entrance to the house has weapons everywhere, which is an interesting little macabre detail um, that I think is sort of added for flair. The story you, Chesterton. is is pretty macabre. Yes, <laughs> this of all the Chesterton ones, it is. It is. Uh, There are other stories about murder, but typically Chesterton, he kind of likes stories that don't involve murder as well. Does a lot about burglary. And so we also meet Ivan, who is his manservant. And he is a character that I imagine in my head as Frankenstein's monster, (laughs) which (laughs) whether or not he actually looked like that in Chesterton's mind, it's up for debate, but He's described as this large, intimidating man. He's very loyal to Valentine, and he is inviting the guests in as they arrive. There's a a set guest list and very stormy weather outside. I think setting is really important, and immediately there's a tone set in this story that things are sort of gloomy and dark, and maybe it's a night where a crime could happen. Right. It's Uh, also a bit... Just like right from the very beginning, you hear that uh, Valentine has been at an execution. Um, and you hear about this execution in the, the first paragraphs of the story. Yes. And then as the events unfold, um, there's several references to execution-like beheading. <laughs> so yes. in the first um, in the first sentences when it's talking about Valentine coming from work to his dinner party. Um, later, when they discover the beheaded body, um, again, when they discovered the second beheaded uh, person, and the, or at least the head. And then later, also in Valentine's study, he has a picture of the newspaper, The Guillotine. Or gu- I never Guillotine. know how to say that with an yeah, American gu- accent. <laughs> Guillotine. Guillotine. Yeah. Um, and he it's a picture of valentine himself uh beheaded, beheaded. because it's a political yeah. cartoon um of right. sorts and yeah. trying to kind of get at him so yeah yeah i actually i want to talk about that for a moment this um these three instances that you just mentioned about beheaded or i guess four actually mm-hmm. so valentine he comes from an execution and it's a brutal execution where the person is beheaded mm-hmm which we don't know until later, but that is the case. And then we have this beheaded person in the garden. And then we find another head. Well, the two heads, one that they think belongs to the body and another head later on. And then this colored image of Valentine um, beheaded, as Grace said, as like a cartoon in the guillotine, which was like a nationalist newspaper. And the way that Valentine reacts to these things, it seems like he's very businesslike about it. And he comes home and he, it says that he immediately goes to his lockbox and secures it and then joins the guests. And there's a line at the beginning of the story that talks about how the duties of executions were 
rootedly repulsive to Valentine, but they were done with precision. And I just imagine as um, a human being who's never, I've never seen another person killed, that it would be shocking to see someone's head be cut off. Granted, maybe he's seen this hundreds of times over his career as a detective or an investigator, but I don't imagine that even be becoming insensitive to um, to these executions, that it wouldn't have some effect on him. Did you have the same thought, Grace? Yeah, I guess I was following the train of thought that it would be shocking at first, but since he is the head of police, he must see this often and is sort of become numb to it or numbed himself to it so that he can continue his work. But I like what you said because I think that it has to, even if you are sort of numbing your emotions to it, I think it must still have an effect on you psychologically, whether you realize it or not. And I think that's something that Valentine experiences in general. And we see kind of more and more throughout this story that his whole life, his work, everything that has kind of, he's experienced is, has gotten to him in a way. Um, without him even really realizing it maybe, or with, without even the people around him really realizing it. Yeah. And reflecting on this story, um, before we are discussing it today, I thought that even if someone was a, a criminal, that the justice system had determined that execution was the proper punishment for their crime, it would be difficult to see someone's head severed from their body. Yes. It's, it truly is a, uh, I, I think, an action that doesn't come naturally to human beings. I think um, our own survival comes naturally. Perhaps if someone attacked you that you would react. But right. that is, I just, I want to draw attention to this because later when we discuss um, finding the beheaded body, it's a very barbaric and unique way of killing yeah. someone. And we really want to try to get into the mind of the killer um, as we try to decide what is it that, that um, drew them to this way of, of doing this. And, well, if you've read the story, as you should have, if you came to this, this <laughs> point, we know that Valentine was the killer in the end. And so I really wanted to try to get inside the mind of, of Valentine and, and understand why, why he chose to do things this way. So um, another quote from the beginning of the story that I wanted to discuss, and this is just from the very first page of the short story, it says about Valentin, he was one of the great humanitarian French free thinkers, and the only thing wrong with them is that they make mercy even colder than justice. Mm. I wrote that down as well. Yeah. What were your thoughts about that? So it made me think of the book, The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. Have you ever read that before? I have not. Oh, it's one of my favorite books. Um, it's about a communist revolution in Mexico in the early 1900s where priests were being round up and shot or forced to take a wife. And um, it was sort of a kind of radical moment in 
the history of Mexico's government and it was brought about a lot of changes. And a lot of it you find out kind of stems from clericalism, something where the church is sort of falling, or at least some of the representatives of the church are kind of falling into sort of a lax practice of the faith. And mm-hmm. people are either oblivious or hurt or frustrated by this. And so there's this Um, police officer, this person who's sort of in the government and in the kind of communist way of thinking, who is very angry at the church. And you see, when I think about Valentine, I think he is just like this Mm. person from The Power and the Glory. But throughout the book, you see him kind of rationalizing what he's doing, and he feels himself a hero. Um, And he really, there's these interactions with children that he has where he's like, he desires them to grow up in a better world than he grew up in with this oppressive church, you know, that he experiences. And I feel like Valentine could probably relate to this person. What happens in The Power and the Glory and what I feel like happens in things like the French Revolution and is you see the anger against an injustice Mm-hmm. be brought to the far end of anger and sure. you start kind of destroying everything in the path, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, yeah. doing all sorts of things that end up actually causing people to suffer more um, than what you had originally experienced. And Valentine's mercy, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. is colder than justice in that way. And that's that's what happens in the power and the glory as well. Yeah. And I think that the reason why the mercy is colder than justice is because it's not God's mercy that he's offering. Mm. Right? I mean, he is a humanitarian French free thinker and he hates the Catholic Church and he is on a mission against it. And I think that everything you mentioned play, plays a role in that, that the church is not perfect by by no means. We mm-hmm. see that today and it's absolutely disappointing and hurtful. We'll get into that another episode maybe. But mm-hmm. I think that the history of France and the French Revolution, as you as you mentioned, began this path of the ends always justifying the means. Right. And um, we're going to see that with Valentine in this story that he he does think that the ends justify the means and that murder is acceptable for the greater good. And I have air quotes around <laughs> the greater good because what Christians believe is that individual lives are sacred and individual lives have dignity and you can't sacrifice a person for a cause. Mm-hmm. It's not acceptable to offer up a person in sacrifice for the sake of something that might that might achieve something good in the end. Now, God does sometimes do good things with bad situations, but that's not for us to decide. I just think it's a really it's a really interesting view that we get of Valentine at the beginning of this because at the last um during the last story that we discussed, we sort of don't get to know him as well. We get to know him as a, a policeman and we get to know him as somebody who admires Father Brown, frankly. At the end of the last um, episode, we discussed that, that, you know, he bows to Father Brown because he was the bright mind that brought Flambeau finally to his knees, you know? 
So it's sort of a different side of Valentine that we're, we're getting to know here, another facet of Valentine. Right. So the guests start to arrive, and uh, we have a principal guest who's being expected, but he's not there yet. Um, some of the other guests are uh, the Galloways, who are an ambassador, his wife, and uh, their daughter, uh, Margaret, and a, uh, a military man, Commandant Neil O'Brien, who is a Celtic, fiery young man, uh, and then various other guests, including Father Brown, Dr. Simon, etc. So we're meeting a, a whole group of people, and then there's like this tension in the air, I think, when you read this part of, of the story when uh, Valentine has arrived, but Brain, Julius Brain, the, the principal guest, has not arrived yet. I think that uh, Margaret Graham and Neil O'Brien are sort of like the red herring in this story because oh, that's very true. The Galloways, her parents, are clearly not fans of his, and there's there's clearly some conflict going on between her family and this young man. And so we sort of think there's unrest stirring here. This might be the reason for um, the crime that's happening here tonight. I kind of want to talk about some of the characters. Absolutely, it, yeah. Just just some of their. I think one of the main things for me in this story was the contrast of three kind of worldviews and the first being Valentine who has, he really does, I think, believe himself a humanitarian, you know, like he thinks that the church is oppressive. He thinks that um, it's unreasonable. He looks at all religious figures like Father Brown as sort of in a sort of dismissive way, he thinks that, I mean, I think he has this interesting relationship with Father Brown at this point. He's only just met him, but his first experience of him was sort of shocking to his worldview. But maybe he's still wrestling with that or hasn't quite figured that out or written it off as a fluke or something. But I think he still might see Father Brown as, or it may sort of underestimate Father Brown. Because one question that I had was like, why would Valentine even invite him to this party? You know, if he doesn't yeah. like priests, um, does he want to be found out? Does he like, I don't know. Did you think about that at all? I did. I have a couple of theories. I think it could be one of two things and listeners, I would be really happy to hear what your theory was as well. Um, I think Grace would too. One of my theories is that he invited Father Brown because he knows what an excellent detective he is and he wanted to be found out. The second theory that I have, which is possibly more reasonable when we um, weigh all of the other clues that we've been given in this story, is that he was hoping that Father Brown would find uh, Neil O'Brien to be guilty of the crime. Mm. I there think that's two, more probable. Yeah, there are two points in the story where Valentine strongly tries to press O'Brien into admitting that it was him. Mm -hmm. And accuses him. I mean, he respectfully accuses him, but he does accuse him. And I think that he was hoping that all of his planning would be convincing enough that Father Brown would uh, rule in the end that O'Brien was the guilty party. And I mean, he invited O'Brien knowing that there was this distrust between the Galloways and O'Brien. And I think that doesn't really give a motive for why he would kill Brain. But um, there, 
there was uh, like obviously this young man is upset and so as the only upset person at the party who's not a lady he's <laughs> a, a nice um victim for valentine to sort of latch on to and also his weapon that it's in his what is it called a sword holster <laughs> what is it yeah. i don't even <laughs> oh my gosh what hilt. is it i don't know he uh scabbard scabbard yeah there you go um he like his weapon is the weapon that is the murder weapon and the blood from the victim is found on it and everything and so yeah i think right. he was trying to frame him yeah and like why even invite o'brien to your dinner party you know you know you're gonna yeah. do this it's obviously premeditated and plans how why even invite him unless you invited him to use his sword as the murder weapon yeah i suppose he uh, could have invited anybody that would have been carrying a sword. I'm sure he knew lots of people in the military and whatnot. But um, yeah, it is really interesting. I think that that second theory of yours makes the most sense. Yeah. The first theory to me doesn't make sense because when Father Brown begins to figure it out and reveal kind of in front of Valentine that he's he goes into figuring hiding. things out, well, he starts he starts kind of losing it. Like he has yeah. kept everything yeah. together up until that point and then he starts to kind of snap at father brown in yeah. different ways and so you can kind of see him starting to unravel and he's i think even more angry that it is father brown that's figuring out the truth i think because he's a priest <laughs> because right. he's right. this representative of the church that valentine hates so passionately the whole reason for his murder to begin with yeah um, yeah so. i yeah i think i think you're right about that Valentine is that is representing that worldview of the sort of uh, the church is unreasonable. Right. I am a proponent of reason and logic. I think Dr. Simon also mm -hmm. represents that worldview in a way. Yeah. Is very cold and calculating, very and he um, wants the facts. He right. Keeps, He's yeah, he all about the logic. And yeah. and it's actually the reason that he can't see the problem being solved. Like he can't see the mystery the what am I trying to say? The solution to the mystery. Right. Because he's so focused on this like logical way of thinking that a person can either be in the garden or not be in the garden Correct. that he's not able to see that a person could half be in the garden and half not be in the garden yeah. <laughs> by being beheaded. Um, that was something and that was mentioned in the, the annotated version that I was reading and so I think he's kind of in Valentine's camp there that even though he seems to be this proponent of the most logical or reasonable situation it almost like blinds him to the full reality that is more kind of commonsensical um, to be able to use a Chestertonian yeah and I think that he has already ruled out Valentine in his mind mm, that's so I true. don't think yeah. he's considering him as the murderer but the difference between Simon, Dr. Simon, and Father Brown is that Father Brown has heard confessions from little old ladies and like really sweet looking little boys and like all kinds of people <laughs> who confess horrible things. Right. Like he knows that all of us are capable of great evil, but we're also capable of great good. Right. Um, he knows that firsthand for a fact. And so I think Father Brown kind of has a leg up in that instance because he isn't ruling anybody out except himself because he knows that he didn't do it, you know? Right. right. 
so there's so there's that on one side of the spectrum um on the other end of the spectrum you have somebody like brain who is this american you know kind of business tycoon or something that he's kind of funneling money into whatever upstart religious group he can think of right that you know and there was some quote about um they're not sure if he's Mormon or right or, witness or, or Christian like, scientist, you know, yeah. these kind of wacky, um, more right. out there versions of religion. He's kind of like dabbled in everything. Right. And, and so he's kind of, he's kind of searching, I think, like you kind of don't know if he's actually searching or if he's just kind of right being amused by these things. Or, and we don't really get to know him more. I mean, right. he comes into the house. And then he's gone. Mm-hmm. He disappears. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting because when they described his body build in the beginning of the um, story, when they, when Chesterton <laughs> described his body in the beginning of the episode, it's like he's very tall and very fat and he's wearing like a particular dark outfit and everything. And so it's kind of crazy to me how our minds do these things that like nobody would look at that body that they just saw minutes, like half an hour before and say, that kind of looks like the massive man who just walked in the, like his head is gone. And so everything is sort of turned upside down. Right. Um, And I don't know like how reasonable that was. I think if I saw a completely different head, you know, I think the first thing that we focus on is someone's face and if they see the face that's the first thing that they might be considering um before thinking about the build of the body because before they didn't see him sprawled out on the ground in a pool of blood you know yeah and he was walking around all pompous and arrogant like i'm this guy with all this money and whatever and now yeah and it's shocking to see a dead person right with their head cut off right (laughs) valentine's the only person who's used to that and perhaps Ivan, I don't know, his manservant, I guess, might be used to it as well. Right. I was also thinking on the other end of the spectrum, too, sort of as of O'Brien, because O'Brien seems to be someone who is somewhat religious, mm-hmm. a little bit frivolous in the way that he lives his life, but he is described in several instances as you know, Gaelic and kind of considering the supernatural and all of these things in the background. And I think he might represent someone whose faith has gone to the edges of superstition and isn't really a real faith that's rooted in truth. Um, That's such a great observation, Grace. Yeah, I totally agree. I just think that, I mean, yeah, and it was funny because I kind of, I, earlier we were talking about being Irish, <laughs> the two of us yeah. both being Irish. Yeah. And I think that there is this sort of uh, fantastical, like, and really quite, quite beautiful culture, but it can kind of lead to, especially in a situation where everything's topsy-turvy, where everything is sort of shocking and brutal, um, you can start to kind of see the spiritual realities of evil and your mind yeah. can go places that um, are a little bit scary. <laughs> you you yeah. actually do believe in the supernatural and you believe yeah. that there are things sort of afoot, um, yeah. but you don't love, know, yeah. but you don't know what exactly that means or how it can be applied or if it's actually reasonable, but you're not really so concerned with that in the moment because of your shock. And O'Brien is there and 
he is contrasted to Father Brown. In fact, there is a point where it said uh, Father Brown, who did not seem to share O'Brien's sensibilities in the least, went up to the second head and examined it with his blinking care. And yes. so Father Brown is not really moved, um, yeah. at least visibly, by what has just happened. Obviously, he's concerned. He's, he's working the whole time. You know, Father Brown's little gears in his brain are working the whole time yes. trying to figure out this crime. But he's not reacting with this, like, shock and horror of O'Brien, whose mind is thinking of all of these Gaelic, you know, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. supernatural uh, fairies and, you know, whatever else. He's representing two kinds of Christians in in these two characters. Have you read The Ball and the Cross? Not yet. I've read the first chapter. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll dive into that on the podcast in um, hopefully like in the next four or five months. But in The Ball and the Cross, there are two characters who are... (laughs) dueling the entire story okay one of them is called evan mckeon and for people who don't know i'm sorry the ball in the cross is another chesterton novel and it is ridiculous hilarious and uh very thought-provoking i would recommend it but evan mckeon represents the celtic um irish catholic who's like really hot-headed and he is so religious to the point of superstition like he just like feels in his blood that he is this religious person and so like he is ready to duel to the death with Turnbull the the atheist who like owns this atheist shop and anyway Chesterton loves the Irish like that persona (laughs) he writes he writes that persona in a lot of his stories um yeah well even even the even the sort of skeptics that are Irish that he's written kind of have that flair about them, like Michael Moon and Man Alive, which we'll read in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, um, has this sort of air of like, I don't know, the fantastic, even if they're somewhat skeptical. I agree. And I think that like, he's bringing up an important point here that like, when you do believe in um, heaven, hell, purgatory and Mm -hmm. also the world that we live in when you are um, aware of these of these places that it is easy to become superstitious and think that the rituals of faith like the liturgy or certain Mm -hmm. prayers are like doing something like a magic trick and um, so anyway O'Brien kind of reminds me of Mickey and from the ball in the cross and I think they're sort of a similar character um, in their personality. Father Brown, will you'll see um, in other stories as well, he's always the cool, calm, collected. And when anybody proposes that something must have been done um, by demons or like some supernatural entity, he is the first to be skeptical of it. And like, mm-hmm. that is the sign of a good priest that they're not going to immediately jump to conclusions and say like, yeah, an exorcism needs to be done here. There are rules to follow. There are uh, rituals to follow in order to sort of um, tease these things out. And Father Brown has no qualms about talking about the reality of evil um, and the reality of the fact that there are more things at work here than meets the eye. But at the same time, he knows human freedom and he knows that evil comes about through humans, through the will. And people are the ones who are making these choices 
and there are certain motivations that they have in their heart and their minds and their experiences. And he's more concerned about seeing right what's in front of him and in, in the flesh first um, to kind of see you know, how these events actually transpired. Because yes, he can believe that a person has been touched by evil, a person who has has been sort of infected. But he knows that that evil is something that manifests itself again in the will. Someone's uh, selfishness, someone's self-centeredness, like to kind of focus on their own world and allow whatever vice it is to blind them Mm -hmm. in the moment. So Father Brown is always going to look at where the human motivations are first. And I think that's his strength that he's able to see, I don't know, sort of by intuition, but also just knowing, knowing human beings, he can look at them instead of just focusing on himself all the time. He kind of, <laughs> in the story, he kind of lurks in the shadows. They like are shocked by him in the corner of the garden inspecting yes. things. You know, he's, he's like getting to right to work. He's trying to look at the people around him. He's trying to really look at the circumstances, figure out what it is. He's not so, he doesn't allow the shock of the moment to overcrowd his emotions and, and fuzzy his vision. You know, I don't right. know. If that's, <laughs> I just made right. fuzzy a verb, but, um, you know, just kind of like cloud their ability to see. Yeah. So anyways, um, I think that the contrast in those characters is important. I think that's what one of the things that that we could draw out of this is we can see in everyday life people who basically allow logic or reason to be their superstition mm-hmm. um, to the point where they're not able to see the common sense human nature that's right in front of them, the things that they know from their experiences. We can kind of get stuck in our brain. We can kind of get stuck in our mind and kind of follow them, follow our thoughts down all of these winding paths that may seem very logical, but if we're looking right in front of us at something, it may sort of jerk us awake to realize that actually that's not reality. And there's another thing on the other end of the spectrum with faith, again, with that superstition of going mm-hmm. too far one way and not, again, looking at what's right in front of us and our own will and our own mind and the things that are happening there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. After the body is discovered in the garden, um, the investigation is afoot. And one of the questions that my husband asked was, why does he keep everyone in the house and start this investigation when he could be found out? Um, And then I go back to, I told him my theory about hoping that Father Brown would find someone else guilty. Needless to say, um, the investigation takes a couple stages. And in the third stage of the investigation, Valentin leaves everyone who's present to go do some writing in his office, he says. And everyone else is sort of breaking things down and discussing things. And the reason O'Brien had been accused was because um, he was missing at the time when this person was killed. We figure out that it is Brain who's been murdered. His head is reunited with his body. It's found down the road or in the water. Is it in the water? I think they find his head in the river because it's all wet and they don't recognize it at first because it's all wet and his hair is all in his face. And also severed from the body. (laughs) Right. So creepy. Uh, The saber is returned to um, O'Brien. Valentin returns it to O'Brien. He goes to his office. And so then we sort of have to talk about, I guess, his his motivations again and um, kind of the wrapping up of this story. 
Father Brown is addressing one by one these questions, these five questions that we asked at the beginning. Why the unlikely weapon? What were your thoughts on on his presentation of that? On Father Brown's presentation of the answers to the questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that he was, it was clear if you read kind of between the lines and the adjectives that Chesterton uses to describe Father Brown as he is giving the answers to these questions. So he asks Dr. Simon to ask the questions again. He's giving the answers and he's almost dejected in answering the questions. Like he knows the answer, but he's like not happy to know the answer. Yeah. He's gloomy about it. He's looking out of a window and not looking at anyone in the eye. He knows who it is. He knows he's, he's upset by it. He doesn't want Valentine to be the criminal. He, I think has a respect for him that we saw last time. He knew Valentine had the intellect and the creative think out of the box type of logic that he is able Mm -hmm. to figure out Father Brown's path that he's laying for him in the last story, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he goes on this whole wild goose chase that actually doesn't end up to be a wild goose chase. He knows exactly what he's doing and Valentine follows him perfectly. And so he has a lot of respect for him. And the two of them are very similar in that way, I think. That line is so sad. It's like so heart-wrenching for me. He goes, why I was going there. I must ask him to confess and all that. Mm. Quiet and business-like about it because he has to be honest about who committed this crime. Did you think that Valentin committed this crime out of madness? Or do you think that he was just so obsessed with his cause that he allowed himself to be carried away it wasn't a moment of passion it was planned i mean he invited all of these people he planned he knew that he was going to be doing this execution he brought this head home that is a nasty phrase i never want to say again he brought this (laughs) he brought this head home (laughs) i think it was probably a snap of madness that happens after a long build or a slow burn, so to speak. Um, He obviously has this hatred that has raged inside of him for a long time against the church, but he's always been able to be calm, cool, and collected. it, It makes me wonder why he became friends with Brain to begin with in America. Um, But I think knowing a person is, he might have been interested in causes that Valentine was interested in at that time. Maybe you know so. I mean? Yeah, because that's true. Because has he's constantly like floated around to many different ideas and ideological groups. And so perhaps at that time he wasn't a threat. That's you know? true. That's, that's a good point. Um, also, there was a sort of balance, right, of all of these religions he was kind of equally pouring his money into. That was another thing that the annotated version I was reading was mentioning that he will, you know, it doesn't really matter if he's pouring his money into Christian science and Mormonism and all these different things, so long as he's not pouring it into the Catholic church, which is the thing that Valentine has the most experience with, like in the country that he's from, in his country's history, you know, and So when Valentine learns, whenever he learns that Brain is considering conversion to Catholicism, I think he is driven somewhat (laughs) mad. Yeah. Yeah. And and I wonder, it makes me wonder if Valentine knows that there's some truth to authentic Christianity, especially after seeing 
Father Brown act the way that he does in the previous story. I'm wondering if he's starting to question all of the things that he's been fighting for and maybe not, but I just, I wonder psychologically if he would be questioning all the things that he's been fighting against for so long. And then all of a sudden something, there's sort of a rock thrown in the window pane of his resolve, you know, and because Father Brown is this reasonable, intelligent, humble character. Mm -hmm. And there's something about him that Valentine clearly respects, as we saw in the last story. So I wonder if the thought of that and then hearing that somebody as wacky and off the wall as Brain is finally landing on Catholicism. It's like Brain is always considered all of these kind of new and upcoming. It talked about like him looking, (laughs) I loved who was talking about him looking for the new, um, was the new Shakespeare or something. I wish that Valentine hadn't committed suicide at the end of the story because I think that Father Brown, he says, I have to go hear him confess this. And it's like, there's such a double meaning there. Like he could confess it in confession as in the sacrament and be repentant and be made clean, but also confess for the law. But I think Valentine wants to go out on his own terms at that point. And I think he knows that he's found out he doesn't want to die um, on an ex- execution block and in a guillotine the way that he k- has killed people for years, right? And ultimately, that is, that's the pride that's mentioned at the end of the story. It, it makes some reference to, what is it, the pride of Cato or something like that. And I think, you know, that's, it's this reference to this, this pride that is fueling also his hatred. I mean, if you cease, if you are so convicted about the real evil that you've seen in the church, but then you're faced with someone like Father Brown who actually does live the faith sort of to the letter. Like he actually does, is concerned with humility. He is concerned with justice. He is concerned with the truth. He's Mm -hmm. kind, he's gentle, you know, he does all these things, um, right. And he does all these things that are to be admired by Valentine, whether he is religious or not. Um, And so it kind of flies in the face of this caricature of the church as a whole that he's made based on the evil that he has seen in it. And so he, I don't, I wonder if he can't handle that almost like before you mentioned how Valentina, the last story reminded you of um, Javert from Mm -hmm. Les Mis. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see that as well, that he can't handle mercy, um, real mercy. You know, he can't handle the, um, the reality of somebody being good, you know, who he once thought was this personification of criminal, you know, or evil or whatever. So I wonder if that is exactly what Valentine is, is dealing with there. So I think a couple of like practical, I don't know, lessons or takeaways that we could draw from this story is first of all to kind of check ourselves to make sure that our rage against injustice um, which can be righteous you know righteous Mm -hmm. anger against things that are wrong um, to make sure that that doesn't blind us to the reality in front of us um, blind us to care for people blind us to our own susceptibility to pride and to you know being corrupted by it yeah. Um, and let the anger that you have for corruption that you see in an institution that's worth preserving, 
let that anger pull you towards action. Like right. do do something about it. I this is one of the things that we see in churches in America at least today and I'm I'm sure throughout Europe as well. Um because I continue to hear that like the faith is dying in Europe. People go to a parish, they're disappointed that it's not everything that they've ever dreamed of. <laughs> it doesn't have the programs that they want. It doesn't have the kind of cool people that they want. So they leave and they try to find another parish. And this happens in, I know, other denominations than the Catholic Church as well. I've heard it from friends. Absolutely. Stop. You live somewhere. Place yourself in a parish and try to make it the parish that you dream of it being. Like start the group that you really wanted to be there. Start the Bible study that you really wanted to be there. You know, volunteer your time so that there is a community that visits together after Mass. Make it the place that you want it to be instead of just giving up on it and leaving and hoping that you're going to find it perfect somewhere else. You could search forever. Nothing is perfect, but you could make a place a, a whole lot better and a place where people actually meet Christ if you invest some time. And energy into it. I mean, think of what would have happened if Valentin, instead of turning on the church, spending his life in hatred of it, had used that energy to try to root out like corruption in the church. He has these investigative abilities that he right? could have used for the good. Right. I think the one telltale um, sign of our righteous anger kind of going wrong or going in the wrong direction is. Um, to just kind of see, is my reaction against this evil causing more division mm -hmm. um, or is it building up in community? So like you were saying, you know, am I actively working to, you know, <laughs> quote unquote, be the change I want to see, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, am I actually being the person that is, that is working to reform or am I contributing to the destruction or the division. Right. And I think there's a lot of that that we can see going on right now when people feel um, uncared for, when people feel betrayed. It's very easy to want to kind of kind of dig in and like make my group versus your group and we're the yeah. true group and you're the false group and whatever yeah. else. And, and it doesn't actually end up solving anything. It only just continues to perpetuate itself within that. I think there's a reality that Father Brown would see that the enemy really is Satan and sin. Um, and it's not the person next to me even yeah. if that person is the one sinning. And I think that's something that Father Brown shows in the sense that he cares so much for the criminals um, that he wants them to convert uh, genuinely. He wants them to be healed. Yeah. And so he doesn't, even though he is vehemently against what they have chosen to do, he is not vehemently against them as people. And that is something that we tend to do is we want to make somebody in front of me the enemy when really the enemy is is the vice itself, is the sin itself, is right. the powers of darkness that are at work in the world. Yeah. And Satan, was he does want to divide us. I mean, we, right. we are reading the screw tape letters in Pints with Jack. We see that Satan wants us to um, kind of dehumanize people and make them the enemy and God wants us to love one another. I mean, he says that in scripture. So let's do it. Amen. I think we need to wrap up there. But before we go, Grace, what are you grateful for this week? 
So my gratitude journal this week is about something very simple. So I was happy to have noticed something that I feel like Chesterton (laughs) would have. But like I said, the weather has gotten colder here in South Louisiana, but it's been very beautiful. There's been days of blue skies and sunshine, which are my favorite, but it's crisp and it's cool. And there's one day a week where I have lunch duty at school outside in the courtyard uh, where our students can eat. And I was sitting out there and it was just glorious. Like I could see the students even acting differently than they normally do. Mm. And there's this particular phenomenon that happens that I noticed in that moment is something that always delights me and kind of like makes me think of God and his presence. And that is the sound of wind in leaves. Yes. So when it's blowing, I love that sound. the breeze is blowing and the the leaves like sound almost like, I don't know. Have you ever seen like a rain stick that has like the yeah. rain in it or whatever? It's very soothing. Yeah. It almost sounds like that, you know, and it just the wind there was, there were leaves that were blowing across the concrete patio, you know, and then yeah. there were leaves in the trees that were rustling and it was just, I don't know. It was magical. <laughs> and awesome. so I just like had this moment of, of gratitude for that particular sound. I love that. So two days ago, I got to work from home in the morning, and um, before I started working, I went for a run um, down in this canyon that's near um, our house. There are a million birds out there pecking at the ground, flying around um, because of the like the dew in the morning and like bugs and things are out and about. But it's just like such a cheerful place to run. Um, there's not really anybody else on this trail usually, but. Um, lots of animals and it just made me feel alive and it kind of made me want to like go walk the Camino or something anyway it was really a nice little moment and I I kind of watch birds frequently I don't really know a lot of types of birds but I I love the birds that live around our house they're typically like sort of the size of sparrows and they're fat and they're really cute. They're doing their own thing. They never poop on me. So I, <laughs> I love the birds. little, I just saw some outside my gym yesterday and they're just like those little round fat ones. And they're just like, beep, 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 beep. like, I don't they even just know. They're your, just like jumping they just around. make your life better. Yeah. <laughs> they're comical. I don't know. It just makes me think God definitely has a sense of humor. Well, thanks for talking with me this week. This was awesome. Yeah. Coming up next week, we have a very Chesterton Christmas episode. So we're going to do something that is a little bit different. We're going to skip Father Brown next week, and we're going to continue after next week's episode with the next Father Brown story, The Queer Feet. But um, this week, we're just going to be reading through some of Chesterton's poetry, uh, maybe even some of Francis's poetry. We've mentioned before that the two of them had sort of a devotion um, to the Christ child at Christmas and just that whole nativity scene. And so we're going to be kind of focusing on that just to kind of get in the spirit of the season. Yeah. Yep. Um, They had a lot of really beautiful Christmas decorations and things. And um, David and I actually took some photos. So I'm going to try to find pictures of of their Christmas decorations that I saw in Oxford. And if I find them, we will link them on our website, pintswithchesterton.com. You can also find us on Instagram at pintswithchesterton or email us at pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. All right. Well, may you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers.